This morning's Old Testament reading is from Psalm 73, beginning with verse 21. You can find it in your Pew Bible on page 580. Psalm 73, beginning at verse 21. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Today's New Testament reading is in the book of John. Chapter 20 can be found on page 1088 in your Pew Bibles. This is John 20, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be to you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be to you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be to you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord.
Matt, you left a bit of a mess up here. I'm just teasing. Good morning, everyone. Um, the uh, COVID camel got its nose into the home's current tent, so to speak. And so uh, about Wednesday, I got a call from Pastor Jen and said, uh, you're a philosopher. Maybe you have thought about doubt before. Since the text is Doubting Thomas, I was like, yeah, I have a few thoughts about doubt. So hence... Uh, Pinch hitting again, it's good to be with you all, and thanks for all who've led us in worship so powerfully so far. I asked Jackie to project this image, which will be familiar, I'm sure, to many of you. This is uh, Caravaggio's The Incredulity of St. Thomas, and I want to just leave it here as the stained glass for us this morning as we're encountering John chapter 20. There's also a soundtrack in my head for this sermon. And it's a song by Nickel Creek called Doubting Thomas. If you haven't listened to it, go find it on Spotify this afternoon. And the other one is, does anybody know, this is, this is a deep cut in the tracks, David Wilcox, God Believes in You. Does anybody know that song? Also worth listening to. All right. Um, there is a, a remarkable, we're going to start with a little philosophy, just get over it. Uh, um, there's a really, really remarkable and important book by a Canadian philosopher, so you know it's true, uh, um, (laughs) named Charles Taylor. And it was called A Secular Age. It was published in 2007. It's been very influential. It's been very illuminating for a lot of people. It's a book that's trying to make sense of, like, what does it mean that we live in the world in which we find ourselves now, which is a different world than people have known in the past. It's even a different world than the world we knew 50 years ago. And one of the things that I just want to pull out as, I think, a helpful explanation in that account, Taylor's trying to say, what does it feel like to inhabit this age in which we find ourselves? And he comes up with this metaphor that I have found very illuminating. And he, it's, he says, what it means to be inhabiting the world in which we find ourselves now is we experience what he calls cross-pressure cross, we are all cross-pressured. And what he means is, living in a secular age, it doesn't mean that nobody believes anymore. It's just that even those who do believe, along with everybody else who believes a million other things, we all experience this kind of push and pull and pressure and tug and haunting of all kinds of rival stories and visions and versions of the good life. We're all in a way, we we find ourselves sort of caught and tempted and pulled and torn and cross-pressured by all of these different faiths, all kinds of different stories, which are very different ways of making sense of our world. And I think what I want us to lean into this morning, what I think this gospel text invites us to lean into this morning, is the fact that, I'm sorry, but I think anyone with a shred of intellectual honesty and who is not willing to stick their head in the sand and be kept up at night by the possibility that faith is a sham has to say, we know what this cross-pressure feels like. I want this to just be a morning of honesty for us, because I think that's what Jesus invites us into. What does it mean to be alive today and to try to believe? It is to realize that faith is fraught. 
that our confession is haunted by a kind of inescapable sense of its contestability. Friends, what I want us to think about this morning is we don't believe instead of doubting. We believe while doubting. We are all Thomas now. That's how the world has changed. And I want us to see that God is not afraid of that. This may be the last time I'm invited to preach. but <laughs> Because here's, here's what I want you to realize. What we are looking at in our stained glass of that doubter Thomas is also one who is a saint. That is Saint Thomas. And in some ways... I want us to think through what it means that a doubter achieved sainthood. And I think the passage that narrates the story in the Gospel of John is included in the canon of Scripture precisely in order to give us an encouraging glimpse into, I'm going to call it the secret lives of saints. The secret lives of saints. I I want to just... Meditate on this passage for a few moments to try to imagine peering into the inner life of this saint. And I want us to see how Jesus responds to doubt. And I want to note just three themes in this regard. First of all, I want us to talk and think for a moment about what I'm going to call Saturday seasons in the Christian life. Saturday seasons in the Christian life. If you notice in verse 24, right, when we first encounter, when this, this, this passage in particular gets going, we note that Thomas wasn't there with the disciples earlier in the week, right? Our passage read where Crystal was reading starts with that first appearance to the disciples, but it turns out that Thomas is not with the gang at that time. Now, why might that be? Why wasn't Thomas there? I want you to recall that that the disciples are emerging from that dark Saturday. They have seen Jesus die. They have seen his body brought down and buried, and they must have spent that Saturday thinking that the world had ended. In some ways, that that terrifying three hours of darkness on crucifixion Friday couldn't have compared to the dark hopelessness of that Saturday. And it seems that for Thomas, and I think this is true for many of us, hopelessness drives us into isolation. We hide. We hide. We sequester ourselves. And like that, Thomas, darkness drives him into hiding. He's not with his people. He's away from the friendships that he had forged over those past several years. And so, while those other disciples are huddled together in verse 19, yes, they are afraid, yes, they are commiserating, but they are together, and Jesus appears to them, Thomas is elsewhere, and he's no less afraid, he's no less miserable, but he's also alone. And so, try to imagine Thomas's state of mind right? The other disciples come bounding up to him, and they're like, we've seen him. He's alive. The darkness of their Saturday, it has. It's, it's dropped away because they have seen Jesus in the flesh. But if you're Thomas, and you're just kind of getting this informational report, is that going to be enough to erase the dark 
despairing hopelessness of your Saturday. And so I think it's completely fair, and I think every other disciple would have had the same response, for Thomas to say, I won't believe it until I put my finger in the wounds. Sorry, I can't believe that yet, just because you've told me it's true. Notice, for Thomas even, it's very specific. It's not enough even for Thomas to just see Jesus. Thomas isn't just struggling with the absence of Jesus. He is struggling with the tragedy of that absence. Jesus, look, Jesus didn't die in his sleep. His life was violently taken. And the one who talked to Thomas about the love of the Father was violently taken from them abused and tortured and suffered a horrible death that they witnessed. Honestly, who could believe in God after that? Who could believe in God after that? And so Thomas announces, basically what he says is this, look, you better not be telling me. You better not be telling me that now Jesus is showing up perfect and pristine as if nothing ever happened. I won't believe the resurrection unless it's going to be honest about the tragedy that I just witnessed. Friends, I am old enough (laughs) now, sadly, to realize that the lives of saints is riddled with Saturdays. Sometimes, if you, if you look closely, you'll notice, in, if you ever get to sort of cathedrals where, uh, scandalously, they have images in the stained glass, uh, um, sometimes you notice the saints have tears. The saints have tears. And when you start to actually peer into the lives of those people who we, we uphold as like the very exemplars of faith, of believers, of followers of Jesus, you realize, oh, man... Their lives went through dark Saturdays. I remember a number of years ago now, probably 15 years ago, they published the journals and diaries of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa, the champion of the poor, the tireless servant of Jesus who devoted her life to the widow and the orphan and the stranger. And yet in her journals she would write, Jesus has a very special love for you, others. As for me, the silence and emptiness is so great that I look and do not see. I listen and do not hear. Even the bombastic German reformer Martin Luther would struggle with bouts of darkness and doubt. And at one point he put it this way, God often, as it were, hides himself from me and will not hear. So friends, if even giants of the faith struggle with doubt, if they too felt like God was in hiding, let's not be too worried and surprised if it shows up in our own walk and journey. I think think one of the most destructive ways of understanding Christianity is to posit faith and doubt as mutually exclusive. 
And let me explain why. When you do that, when you set it up, it's either you believe or you doubt. When you set it up that way, then anyone who experiences moments of doubt assumes they're not a believer. If, if we paint the picture of being a Jesus follower in such a way that it means never experiencing doubt, then it's understandable why a lot of us who struggle with doubt conclude, I guess I'm not a Christian. I can, if, that's, if that's what being a Christian is, I guess I'm not and can't be. But friends, I want us to understand that is a false dichotomy. And in particular, I want some of you might need to hear this. The forms of Christianity that you have known that did not give you any room to doubt were rooted in fear, not faith. The forms of Christianity that you've known that never had enough room and safe space for you to express your doubt, those were rooted in fear and scarcity and anxiety, not faith. And in fact, what you'll sometimes see is when you look at these lives of the saints, you'll see that you don't just endure Saturdays, you endure Saturday seasons. Saturday seasons where our consciousness of the tragic overwhelms and envelops our sense of grace and the goodness of God. And Thomas is, in a way, in one of those seasons because it's been a week of private terror for him. The doubt pours over him in waves while on the other side he's buffeted by sorrow and grief. This isn't, Thomas's doubt is not some sort of like philosophical defiance, I won't believe because there's not enough evidence. It's not that, it's not like apologetics doubt. This is somebody who says, I have seen things and I can't believe if that's the way the world is. So what happens? Here's our second theme. I want you to notice in verse 26, notice carefully how the narrative moves forward. First of all, in verse 26, it says, a week later. Now, I want to pause on this for just a moment. A week? A week? Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher, some of you might know, maybe not, anyway. Kierkegaard's amazing. Kierkegaard's amazing. Um, he wrote a famous book on um, uh, Abraham and Isaac called Fear and Trembling. And one of the things he points out as, as you're reading that narrative of Abraham taking his son Isaac up Mount Moriah to be sacrificed, one of the things he points out is, he says, by the way, don't skate over this too quickly, but it took them three days to get up the hill. Now, step back from your sort of like ESPN highlight reel of, of inhabiting the world and just try to slow motion that down and imagine what it meant for a father to walk for three days thinking he's going to sacrifice his son. Let's slow motion down John 20 for a second and ask ourselves what is happening for a Thomas who has to live now in a week-long Saturday. But what does Jesus do with Thomas's doubt? He shows up. 
What does Jesus do in the face of Thomas's doubt? He shows up. Jesus meets Thomas where he is. He comes to Thomas, he speaks peace into his life, and then he invites him to wrestle with his doubts, like, like uh, uh, Jacob wrestling with God. And so in Jesus, what does he do? He invites Thomas to touch his wounds. This is what we see Caravaggio picturing so in such a tactile and visceral way. This is like a scene that foreshadows every short story you've ever read by Flannery O'Connor. It's gothic. Jesus invites Thomas to enter into the grotesque and to put his hands into the wounds. And I think there are two very important lessons embedded here for us. The first is this. I want to suggest, and this is maybe slightly heretical, but I want to suggest that Thomas's doubt is a kind of brutally honest faith. Let me try to explain. Thomas's doubt actually comes from the cognitive dissonance of believing what God has said and inhabiting the brokenness and fracture of the world that he's experienced. It's not defiance. It is cognitive dissonance. How can I put these things together? So unlike Thomas's doubt is a kind of brutally honest faith, it is not certainty. Faith is never certainty. Thomas is very upfront and honest about the tragic nature of a broken world, the sort of, the sort of world that would crucify its creator. And so Thomas doesn't want an easy faith. The only faith that Thomas is interested in is the faith that goes through the tragic, that wades and sticks its hand into the tragedy. This, I think, is actually at the heart of the secret lives of saints. Saints experience the depth and richness of God's grace precisely because their faith hangs very precariously on a kind of tipping point, a fulcrum between God's glory and the tragedy and brokenness of the world in which we still find ourselves. Saints live on that cutting edge. They live on that tipping point. And in some, some times, that's why, think of every way that Mother Teresa answered the call of Jesus to the poor meant she was also encountering the world we made that made the poor. Those who confuse faith with certainty stay as far away from that tipping point as they can. It's sanitized Christianity. It's feel-good Christianity. It's happy-ending Christianity. It's victorious Christian-living Christianity that doesn't have any way to make sense of the horror. But second, this is, this is what I want us to walk away with. I want us to notice... That in God's response to Thomas, God absorbs the doubt and questions. God meets us where we are with all of our doubts, and he doesn't paper over the tragedy of the Fridays and Saturdays. The tragic and broken is taken up in the inbreaking of resurrection Sunday, the inbreaking of resurrection faith. It isn't ignored. It's not as if it never happened. Rather, the, the risen Jesus meets Thomas where he is and he invites him to touch the tragic, to put his hands in the wounds. And Jesus doesn't pretend it is otherwise. 
God is not afraid of our doubts. So we shouldn't be. God is not afraid of our doubts. It's why he gave us psalms of lament. God is not afraid of our doubts. He meets us in them. He gives himself to us in the face of them. He isn't interested in giving us a faith that acts as if there's no tragedy. This is why, finally, I want us to just appreciate what it means to believe. Obviously, Jesus commends to Thomas to believe. In fact, Jesus exhorts, the way he puts it, the tense of the text is, he exhorts Thomas to no longer be unbelieving, but to be believing. And the tense is kind of interesting here because it has a sense of an ongoingness. Like this is work that you're going to have to keep doing. And then he remarks, blessed are those who have seen, who have not seen, and yet have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. Who's he talking to? Us. Us. Every single one of us. And he's speaking to us, and he's not trying to demonize or villainize Thomas. Jesus is encouraging us by suggesting that believing is blessed. Believing is blessed. Not certainty, not a, 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 um, sort of a, a, a knockdown, drag out proof of things. You'll never get that. You'll never have it. What you have is believing, which is an entrusting to the God who gives himself for us. In fact, it's Kierkegaard again, who I, I think of as sort of the patron doubt, the patron saint of doubting believers. Pa- Kierkegaard once said, doubt comes into the world through faith. Doubt comes into the world through faith. Doubt is not the antithesis or antidote. It is, friends, I think, especially in our age, a companion on the way. In fact, I would even say, really, only believers can doubt. Only believers could be nagged by doubt. If you're just like a confident atheist, there's no doubt. (laughs) Only believers can doubt. And in some cases, doubt is faithful. In some cases, working through the question, facing the problem, asking God, as Gary did in his prayer today, what is going on here? Sometimes the expression of doubt is the most faithful way of following Jesus. Sometimes our doubts grow out of our believing the promises of a good and loving God. This is what the Psalms enshrine in the kind of questioning we experience in lament. It's this strange paradox that sometimes it's more faithful to doubt precisely when it seems like God's goodness has been eclipsed by the tragic. It's not that we won't believe, it's that we sometimes can't believe. And at those moments... God shows up, like Jesus to the disciples, and in some strange, paradoxical way, kind of says yes to our expression of doubt and our questions and our cognitive dissonance. God meets us where we are, and in doing so, he actually affirms that sometimes even doubt is faithful. For Thomas, this was an invitation to plunge his finger into his wounds. To encourage belief, 
to encourage belief, Jesus invites Thomas to consider his body. I want you to notice, even a week earlier, did you note when Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, showed up to all the other disciples, what did he point to? His hands, the scars. This is what the resurrected body looks like. It bears the scars. When he wants to encourage belief, Jesus invites us to consider his body. Friends, I think he's still doing the same today. Doubt is not foreign to the Christian life. The questions, the despair, to be perfectly honest, sometimes the embarrassment of being a Christian because of other Christians, it's all real. Let's not pretend it's not real. All of them are something that we are likely to experience on the journey of faith. There are going to be days and times and seasons when I find it hard to believe. There are going to be, and in those times, Jesus invites me to reach out to this body. To all of you. You are the body of Jesus. To me. Look, I know it is easy pickings to criticize the so-called institutional church. Trust me. I absolutely know that. The so-called institutional church has given us a million reasons not to believe. I get it. But then maybe instead of thinking about this as the institutional church, which I get, Remember instead that this right here is the body of Jesus. This is the body of Christ, and we too bear our wounds. And some of you keep showing them to me. And I recognize Jesus in you. Some of you are such remarkable saints. And it's not the people you see up here. It's, it's those of you who are doing such incredible, faithful, quiet, servant work. And I know that you also go through your doubts. We bear our wounds, and yet Christ has raised us up to newness of life. So, so when you're in, look, look, when you are in a Thomas-like season of doubt and despair, and when the institutional, institutional church has given you 57,000 reasons to walk away from it all. Jesus still wants to encourage you to come here. Come here. Immerse yourself in this body, and we'll believe for you. Some of us, on any given week, can pull that off. We'll believe for you. Your very presence here is an act of faith. It's your way of saying to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. Being here, that's all you got to do. Just be here. We'll sing for you until you can join the choir again. And then I might need you to take my turn. In the end, none of this, 
This is the absolute scandal of the gospel. None of this actually depends on your belief. Your belief is not the performance that saves you. What it all depends on is what the God who believes in you has done, is doing, and will do come again. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, when we start to doubt that you exist, you still believe in us. When we cannot put together the world we experience and the promises you've made, you are still faithful. And we are so grateful that you are a God who can absorb our questions who can hear our doubts, who meets us where we are and even invites us to plunge our hands into the very tragedy of this experience that we know because you are bringing, making all things new. Just as you have raised Jesus Christ with scars, you are making all things new. And we thank you that you give us your body now, which is all of these hearts and minds that surround us to sing for us, to believe for us, even on the days that we can't. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and love and welcome. Amen.